Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. We're a little later than normal this week. Well, it's my fault. I'm sorry. You requested to do this after the race, so we held off and we did it after the race. Well, yes, but it, it's it's my fault. I have been distraught since the race, and since I've been curled up in a corner crying, I have just now gotten it together long enough to get through the show, but we may be applying alcohol later. There was a lot, you know. I, I am wanna, angry. Yeah. You know, let, let's not jump into the race. We're just not going to jump got ahead. Some other stuff. I'm going to keep it under control, I promise. But, uh, yeah, this race did not turn out the way it looked like it was going to turn out. Yeah. I realize that you've had to apply ice cream and chocolate all afternoon to get me over it, but I- I'm getting better. Well, one thing I did not apply to this was cigarettes. Thank goodness, since I don't smoke and wouldn't have you around if you did. Well, true. Uh, But one of the things that it's really not well known anymore, you know, back, what, 10, 15 years ago, tobacco sponsorship was huge in racing, and a lot of the decisions that were made for how formula one worked was in large part due to the vast gobs of money that the tobacco companies were feeding the teams well i think that is by definition the tobacco company vast gobs of money yeah um well one of those partnerships the long-standing partnership between philip morris and ferrari more specifically philip morris's brand marlboro even though there's no more advertising, uh, there's not a public face to this other than Maurizio Arriva Bene, who used to be a marketing manager for Philip Morris. Ferrari, and you know, if you squint just right, he kind of looks like the Marlboro Man. It's one hell of a squint, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Ferrari has renewed their secret partnership with Philip, Mar- Philip Morris and Marlboro. Okay, so I have questions. Okay. Um, since it's a secret partnership, mm-hmm. and obviously not so secret since we know about it, I get what Ferrari's getting from Philip Morris money. Yeah. What is Philip Morris getting from Ferrari? Because it's not uh, advertising. It's not their name on anything. It, it's an excellent question. They've They've tried a couple of subliminal ways to market their product the the last campaign that they did and i think it was when the year kimmy was still driving for ferrari it's first first time time. (laughs) um the tail wing and one or two other places instead of having marlboro spelled out it was a barcode oh but my understanding is that the red that ferrari has been running has been less for ferrari but for the Marlboro sponsorship. I could be mistaken here. And also, technically, even though it's not put on anything, but technically, Marlboro is a title sponsor for Ferrari. The only thing I can think of, okay, knowing what the, the way Ferrari happens to function, is that what Philip Morris is getting from Ferrari is access. They're able to turn around to 
whatever potential partners that they are wheeling and dealing and whining and dining and say, look, we can get you this exclusive access to the race. You know, that might be part of it is using the access to get people either in the pit or wherever they need them to be. Um, Potentially, you know, time at Marinello, that kind of a thing. Right. Okay, that I can understand. But it seems so weird when you think of sponsorships. You think of the big giant name, Patronus, Santer, um, Santander. Um, that's not the right word. Santander. Santander. I always forget the D in there. Or actually, if if you say it with the correct accent, it's Santander. Uh, again. <laughs> um, you know, those are the names that you think of because they're plastered everywhere. Yes. Um. In your list of things that we were going to go over, is the driver survey one of those? You know, I was just thinking we had forgotten to talk about that, but the sponsorship reminded me. That, that was that exactly because I just up. finished it. Um, I just finished the the sponsorship with the whole driver survey, and sponsorship is how it ends. And one of the questions that they have is name five sponsors that you know off the top of your head, right? And of course, it's Patronus and Santander and um, I Pirelli, went with Vodafone. Really? Yes. Because they're not a sponsor. And mobile. They're not a sponsor. Anymore. I know. And I realized as I was putting it in there, and I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? Suck it, McLaren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I pulled out Red Bull and Mercedes. Oh, that's true. You could have gone with those two. Um, you know, we talked last week. We briefly mentioned the Grand Prix Drivers Association survey. It came out this week. We both took it, and I believe you've got – uh, we will get this up, I believe, the last day that it's available. So Monday the 25th, I think, is the last day that you can take the survey. You've got to go to the Grand Prix Drivers Association's website. So if you, I believe it's like gpda.org off the top of my head. If you Google GPDA, um, it's, it's one of the top links that will come up. It, it, it says Drivers Association yeah. Survey. Now, just a warning, this is not a quick survey. No. It's, it's going to take you 10, 15 minutes. And it's fairly intensive. But I found it was extremely well done. It was. Uh, the driver quotes on the side were, you know, encouraging. Amusing, yes. And amusing. Um, but I was very interested in the questions that they asked. Everything from if we thought that F1 was too safe to, yep. um, you know, our Should there thoughts. be more celebrities and the glitz and the, the glamour? glamour? You know, You're what th- do you like about it? Who do you watch it with? Yeah. When do you watch it? Um, all of those things. Also, um, there was questions about sponsorship, whether or not you thought it was too much of a business and less of a sport. Um, should safety cart rules be changed? Should qualifying be changed? Um, all of the... For lack of a better term, and I will admit I, I'm stealing this from somebody's column in Autosport, all of the Bernie brainwaves that we have gotten over the last few years <laughs> from the double points and whether or not you think you should see we should see double points again to sprinklers. Yes, that was even asked. I was a little stunned by that being asked. Yeah. So if you haven't taken a survey, take a couple of minutes and uh, try and get over to the GPDA's website and get in and take it. It is very well done, and hopefully it will influence something. 
I hope so. I think it'll give people an idea of what's really important because I think that was a lot of the questions I asked was, is this part important to you? Is this part important? You know, what's what's the level of spectacle? Do you want to see yeah. qualifying change? Do you want to see this? Do you, all of those things, and they're all ranked. And I think it'll be very, very interesting. But I do have to ask you because it's not, you know, it's not like voting in America. It's not a private ballot. I need to know, who did you say were your top three drivers? Um, For all time? You know, I don't remember. No, not the all time one. The current, they gave the current roster and asked for the, your three favorite drivers. Lewis Jensen, and I don't recall who I put for the third one. It was not Roberto Mary. I do remember that. And it wasn't <laughs> Will Stevens. Mine was Lewis, Will Stevens, and... <laughs> um, Val- Valtteri Bottas. Okay. Because I really think he's a, he's a very good driver. He is. He's, he's coming along great. I, I would have given Jensen the nod, but he's a senior statesman. And so while I enjoy listening to what he has to say, I'm not as fascinated by his driving anymore. Okay. Um, but for my favorite teams. Yeah. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Mercedes. Uh-huh. Manor Marussia. Okay. Williams. I think I put... McLaren, Manor, Marussia, and Williams was what I did. Interesting. Which, you know what? I I was going to talk about them later, but I'm going to hit them right now. Okay. I got to say, at this point, some of the shine's coming off of them. Them who? Manor, Marussia. Uh-oh. I'm starting to become a little disillusioned now. And it's not because they haven't returned our email for sponsorship? It, it's not, but it is kind of related to that. For, first off, let's go back to – obviously, they got knocked out of Q3. They were not going to be competitive, but they were four seconds off the pace. They, they <coughs> I were, think that was a typo, actually. They were three seconds – both of them were three seconds off everybody else, their, their closest competitor. Is that the official results? I believe that's official at this point. They were not anywhere close. There's that. The other one is that here we are in Monaco. We're at what? Race number six? Mm -hmm. And there is still not a single sponsorship on that car. And we know that Will Stevens is a paying driver. Roberto Mary is a paying driver. It had to be a typo on the, the screen, honey. Okay. The reason I say that is I'm looking at the official results on the F1 app. Okay. And they were two seconds off the pace of Mark Erickson and uh, Valtteri Bottas. Okay. I'll, I'll take back the, the pace that then. One. Okay. Two seconds, that's a little bit more respectable. But I will go back to both of their drivers are paying drivers. They have sponsors. To me... There's no reason at this point that there is no sponsorship at all on those cars. Between them and the other one, we have the owner of the team owns an energy company. Yeah. And I get it that the, that this is a very English-centric company, but he owns an energy company. Why are those logos not on the car? Your other big, high muckety muck within it, and I don't remember his exact team, his exact title anymore. Used to be the CEO of Sainsbury's. Again, a large English <coughs> English company. There is probably 
what they call a Chinese wall between the team owner and his other businesses, which does not allow that to happen without an actual contract agreement. They can't just slap something on the car. And I get it, and I know it's DJ buggy. Malia does it. Every- DJ Malia walks the, the borderlines of legal, not legal, legal, the, the legal. Ma- the majority of the brands that are on the Force India cars are brands that he owns. I understand that, but there's probably some type of of difference and how those things work. And you know something? I don't know. I, I realize the bloom's off the rose for you, but I think they're still trying to get it all together. And quite frankly, I'd rather them have a competitive car than a sponsor on their car. But they need both of those. Well, they need sponsors to get a competitive car, and I get that. But I have a feeling, well, maybe they could have a secret agreement with Marlboro, too. Yeah. I mean, they are running a red car. Okay. and Well, red, white. Red, white, and a Ferrari engine, right? There you go. Maybe okay. that's what it is. There you go. Their okay. title sponsor, apparently. So, moving away from them a little bit, um, you know, we've had the speculation. We, we've talked about this that maybe Audi will, maybe Audi, well, will they? Won't they? Audi has come out a. Um, they have ended speculation. A spokesperson for the brand has come out and said to Reuters, they have no plans at this point to enter Formula One. Alrighty. Now the key piece is there. At, at this, this point. point, so. It could change, Mm -hmm. but as of right now, we are not going to see Audi and F1. All righty. So Bernie Eccleston. Of the bad hair, Bernie's? Yes. Oh, my. He is apparently spoke again. Oh, crap. Every time he opens his mouth, it's not fun. He says... German drivers Nico Rosberg and Sebastian Vettel are not good for business because they do not do enough to endear themselves to fans. And you touched on this a little bit a couple of weeks ago with him saying it about Vettel. He said it about both of them. He blames the loss of the German Grand Prix this year on the fact that neither Rosberg nor Vettel are very popular with German fans and thus that's why the promoters um, and the trucks didn't want to pay his fees because they weren't going to come out to see the home guys win. Well, what I find is interesting is that there was talk in one of the broadcasts that we watched. I, I think it was actually the NBC broadcast this morning, but it could have been yesterday on the BBC. I don't recall that German TV audiences this year are actually up. Yeah. Last year they were down. But this year that they were up. Now, despite, the, despite this, Bernie has said, as the cancellation of the German Grand Prix indicates, Germany is a terrible market for Formula One. I shake my head. I really do. I mean, I think the translation for Bernie is Germany is a terrible market to pay your incredibly exorbitant fees. Well, there's that. There's also the fact that you know, he's probably still a little concerned that if he shows up in Germany, they're going to come after him. You know, he was persona non grata in that country for Isn't there a, a year, warrant year and a half. Still out for well, him? No, or did was, he settle was, that? He, he paid off the, the judge. Oh, that's right, because that it wasn't was a, a bribe. It was a legitimate payoff. No, no, oh. this was different. What it was was basically he went to the German government and said that if I give you X amount of millions of dollars, can we just make this thing go away? Ah, uh. 
And they said yes. It was it, a settlement. It wasn't a, a bribe. Okay. So this this was legal. Okay. It's a legal bribe. A legal one. All righty. Speaking of uh, of contracts, Lewis has a contract. Yes. And a, an interesting little tidbit about his contract. I mean, we don't know all the details, and we're never going to know all the details. It's obviously reported a $150 million they kept saying dollars, but I wonder if it was in euros. But uh, uh, basically, fifty million a year for the next three years. Mm-hmm. But it is a three-year contract, not a two-year with an option for a third. Yeah, and that is supposed to be pretty unique, um, in that it's a solid three-year contract. The other thing was Lewis's statement about his contract was that this. You know, that he was felt supported by Mercedes. They've been, he's basically driven Mercedes engines since the beginning. Right. And they've supported him since he was 13 years old. And it's, he's very comfortable where he is. And this contract will take him to a very, what, how did he put it? Uh, historic place for Mercedes. So are they having an anniversary coming up or something? Well, for him, it'll be 20 years. Uh, at the end of this contract for him with Mercedes. Well, that could be part of it. Yeah, they they began supporting him in 98. Okay, and so he will be 33 years old. And Now, for, for folks who are trying to figure this out, and go, well, wait a minute, Mercedes hasn't been in the sport that long. you got to remember when he started with McLaren, McLaren was the Mercedes works team. Right. So... Um. You know, I remember back when he used to be with McLaren and he would constantly talk about how McLaren, because he came up through their young driver program and everything like that, that, you know, they had supported him since the beginning of time. Well, now that he moved to Mercedes, it's now Mercedes has supported him since the beginning of time. (laughs) Um, I just find that little shift a wee bit interesting, although, you know, it's because of the relationships between the teams and the engines and the works team and the former works team and things like that. I think it's um, it's accurate. It's not like he's revising history. I just find it funny how he's changed the nuance of it. Yeah. So from successful with their contracts and things, we have somebody who's not quite so happy. Um, Roman Grosjean this past week at a press conference said that uh, – Missing free practice one makes the weekend harder. Now, he's missed free practice one three (coughs) times already this season uh, to allow test driver Jolien Palmer to to drive. And he will be doing so another seven times this season. Why are they always doing it to Grosjean and not to Maldonado? The best that – he hasn't offered an explanation as to why, but the best that – anybody thinks is that it's the financial backing that Maldonado and Palmer have are greater than what he brings. Okay, but how many races has Grosjean finished this year? Uh, three or four. How he hasn't races? finished every one. How many races has Maldonado finished? Wait, hang on. Let me, let me carry the one. Don't want to divide by zero. One. You know what? That is one more race than I have won this year. You haven't won any races. He hasn't won any races. It's one more race than, than you've I've even been completed. finished. It's one more race than you've participated in this year. 
but it's only one. I yeah. I could be a Formula One driver. Ama- I could be Maldonado. Amazingly enough, though, the, once again in Monaco, his failure to finish not necessarily his fault. Well, true. actually, I I gotta say, for what we have seen with Pastor Maldonado. He drove out there incredibly mature and incredibly composed during the race for when he was in the race. Well, yeah. It it really was shaping up to be a respectable drive from Pastor. Which is unique. Yes. But Grosjean's problem is that, you know, free practice one, they normally they test the new aero parts. They do some back-to-backs. They get enough time lapse that they can figure out what's, what works and what doesn't. He starts off down a practice session. Oh. And it, it does. It, it handicaps his race. Well, that doesn't seem very fair, really. Yeah. So we're still having fallout from last week's – actually, well, it's almost two weeks now uh, – meeting of the F1 strategy group. Yes, I found it fascinating to hear the teams that aren't part of the strategy group reacting to what the strategy group had to say. Well, you know, the the most vocal has been Monisha Keltenborn. Okay, seriously, can I just take a second and tell you that that woman has no business speaking out whatsoever. She signed three drivers to two seats. When you can't do basic math, you don't get a right to speak out. Well, here's the thing. Her team doesn't have a seat. At they, the table. They they are not technically represented by the strategy group. Correct. Even though they are a participant, they are a team. By comparison, Bob Fernley. Or we could go with Bob Fernley! Because he's kind of crazy. <laughs> you scared our in-studio audience. I probably scared a whole lot of people with that because he's kind of nuts. Well, he is, and somebody really needs to pull him aside and talk about his prom. Yeah. But Bob Fernley, who does have a seat, says the same thing. Okay. Woman who can't count, crazy Bob. Well, let's start with— Do you have anybody that I would consider sane that has come out and said these same things? Well, before we get there— Okay. Let's start with the thing that everybody seems to be hung up on right now, and that's the refueling, the, the, the refueling proposal. And we talked about, uh, about this a bit last week. We've gotten a little more info, <laughs> and, and, and there's been a, a lot more talk about this idea. First off, the thing that everybody keeps coming out and saying, yes, it is not quite as safe. There are risks. But again, this is auto sports. This is motor racing. Let's look at the fact that what we were doing this weekend was taking 900 horsepower cars and running them through the streets of Monaco. Narrowly. Narrow streets of there Monaco. There you go. So risk, the, the, okay, the, so- it comes part and parcel with what we are doing here. It's not like every time they fueled a car, they caught the car on fire or took the fuel hose down the pit lane and sprayed everybody with fuel. I get that part. But that's only one part of the reason why they they shelved refueling. There, there were two really big reasons. 
the first one was cost. The rigs were expensive to buy. You only got them from one manufacturer. They were super expensive to buy. The other one is the actual, and not being fans of F1 at the time, we did not see this. But there has been a lot of talk about the impact that this has on the racing. Mm-hmm. Because it becomes a, it changes a lot of the tactics and a lot of the way teams function and the passes and the action that happen. In many cases, can take it off the track and into the pit lanes, right? And it makes it more a matter of your pit strategy and how much fuel you put in and how you respond to the other teams. And instead, folks are passing other folks in the pits as opposed to on the track. Well, and some diehard refueling supporters will tell you that that is an added level of strategy that they like in the the sport. No different than tire strategy as to whether you go soft, hard, soft, or soft, soft, hard. Um, You know, how you do your tire strategy, this would add a level of component to it. And those that are pro refueling think that that's a good thing. Those that are pro on-track action, it seems to be about 50-50 as to whether or not they think that refueling spurs more on-track action. Because you start with a lighter fuel load in the beginning, you get passes early. Yeah. Or if they then get upset because the passing actually occurs when somebody has to sit in the pits and wait for the fuel to finish up. Well, what I think is going to be the final nail in the coffin of this proposal and why it probably will not get adopted is apparently the agreement was that they want to bring back fueling without a substantial increase in cost. And there's going to be. Mm-hmm. They've got to redesign the cars to take the, the rigs. They've got to cut the rigs and all that other stuff. But they also don't want it to substantially add to the pit stop times. Right. So they want to be able to refuel a car and they've come out and said this they want to be able to refuel a car and change all four tires in the same three seconds 2.1 to 3.5 seconds of a current generation pit stop no way in hell are they going to pull that one off i i don't see how they're going to make that happen that you're going to put 20 to 25 pounds of fuel into a car in two seconds. Safely. Yes. And not expensively. Yeah. I, 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 it's, do you remember the old adage that you could have something fast, good quality, or, or low price? Pick two. Well, it, it, you can either do it fast, right, or cheap. And you only got to pick two. Uh-huh. That is what I think this is coming down to. And, and let's also remember that I don't believe these cars actually have fuel tanks i believe they're bladders mm-hmm. so in, so in order to put this super... in there you you're it's a high pressure shot i can't see that being able to be done safely yeah you want it cheap fast and safe what are you going to give up because you can't have all three yeah but the the big talk over this week besides the fueling has been the fact of really how how is the strategy group really functional anymore it doesn't represent the teams it can't represent the teams you have six teams sitting on it but it's not the full representation of the grid 
Manor doesn't have a seat. And I get that Toro Rosso really probably doesn't need a seat since they're just a child team. Sauber does not have a seat. Correct. How does that make any sense? Caterham, when they were running, didn't have a seat on this strategy group. And I think that the voting is not... I, I had heard somewhere, somebody tried to explain the voting. John, um, John Todd has six votes. Bernie has six votes. And then the six teams have six votes. But then there are some portions of this that are also engine manufacturers get a place at the table, but it's a non-voting seat. Uh, yeah, I believe But they get to be a part of that. Sauber doesn't even get to be in the room. Right. And so there's definitely a question as to whether or not this is really in the best interest of the sport. And in fact, that driver survey, one of the questions was, and I don't know if you noticed it, was whether, you know, whether or not the strategy group should include the teams. It was, it was should include written, all the teams. Yeah. It, uh, it wasn't, it should include all the teams. Should it include the teams at all? Should uh, they yes. have, and it was, it's, it was written in such a way that it was obvious that they were asking, you know, should the teams be involved in the rulemaking or should they have a rulemaking body, FOM, mm-hmm. and the teams adjust and adapt to the rules that are handed down to them. And I thought that was a very interesting question that they were asking. Um, but so with the six teams that are there, you still are going to have a mix of places because here's the thing. If Jean Todd and Burning are not sitting on the same t- side of the question, you've then got a division of the teams. Yep. And the teams are always going to do what's in the best interest of themselves, especially if they're winning. Absolutely. And, you know, yesterday uh, the BBC aired an interview uh, Tom Clarkson actually did a whole piece on the changes and what was being proposed and the various reactions that have come down. And his last bit was some comments from Christian Horner. And this year, I will admit, we have not been in agreement with much of what Christian has said. I know. But I got to say, his comments here were spot on. So let's play them real quick. Think bigger than your own team for a moment. Think about what's right for Formula One. And for the record, did you always do what was right for Formula One when you were dominating? Absolutely not. <laughs> you do what right, what's right for your team. That's what I'm paid to do. Which is why you can't put the teams in that position. That's why you know Bernie is the guy that's responsible for promoting it. Sean's responsible for writing the rules. Those guys need to get together and, and sort it out. See, and that's the thing I love was... If you had taken just the clip at the very beginning, it would have sounded like Christian Horner was an absolute hypocrite. Yeah. Because he started off with going, well, you got to do what's right for F1 and forget, you know, put your team second. Um, because, and, you know, that's been the way it's sounded with so many of his sound bites lately has been, you know, oh, I'm losing. Therefore, I need you to do, you know, what's right, what's quote, right for F1, which would ultimately make it easier for me to win. When the reality is, he goes on to say that that's not the way he did it, and that's why it should change. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously, marriage has changed the man. The, the concern as, – as much as I agree with his comments, the concern I have, Bernie Eccleston, as the promoter – and the promoter should be coming out with the ways to ensure that the sport stays fresh and that it's good and that it's competitive and that it's popular and that it's attracting viewers. 
But let's look at the harebrained ideas that Bernie has come out with. The randomly random sprinklers to come up and make it suddenly a wet race. The um, double points, double points, which if Bernie had gotten his way would have been last year, three races and really wants it for, oh, even more than that. Oh, yeah. The let's bring F1 to Azerbaijan who brings no money or no anything to the sport. Bernie has got some harebrained ideas. I'll grant you. I'm, I'm not and I'm convinced sure that, his that the current... reverse grid wasn't a bad idea, though. I think it's an awful idea, personally. <coughs> Although I was amused by the proposal that was in the driver survey about random draw on the grid. No qualifier. You draw yeah. your slot. Sometimes you're going to be in the front and sometimes you're going to wind up in the back. It's based on the luck of the draw. I kind of thought that could be a little interesting. That could be. I don't know. I just think if you do a reverse grid, you're going to have a crash. I mean, there's there's yes, going to be it crashes at the risk dramatically. There's going to be crashes at the first corner at every race, and I will tell you that I answered the question in the driver's thing. I don't watch F1 for the crashes. I don't. Yes, they're fascinating, and as long as somebody walks away from it, um, I'm I'm thrilled to be able to see how much those cars can withstand because they really look like if you look at them wrong, you could dent them. Um, And you can. But I'm amazed that they can protect the driver the way they do, and that is a feat of engineering that marvels me. But I don't watch F1 to watch a car go flying upside down in the air like I did the first season, like I saw in the first season, thank you, Roman, um, that I watched F1. I don't watch it for that. I yes, want to see great passing. Hmm? We, we could have watched the run-up to Indy to see that happen. This year. I, I know. <laughs> I watch it to see great passing. I want to see great strategy. I want to understand the strategy. I spoke... I. To answer a lot of questions about, I want to hear more analysis of the race and more about the strategies that are going into the race than I care about a lot of the other things, especially like engine noise. But I don't watch it for the crashes. And if you put the best driver at the back of the grid and make them fight their way forward, how is that? Yeah, there's huge risks there. And then look at Monaco, where you... That just seems where passing isn't really possible. You'd have to create tracks that actually passing is possible safely. And how staged in, I mean, we might as well have WWE at that point where it's all scripted. Okay. Fair enough. I have spoken. I'm against the reverse grid. Okay. Do I need to say any more about it? No, I, I, I think you have said your piece on it. Okay. What so. Next? This weekend. This weekend had some very notable things that we need to call out about Monaco. First and foremost, Roberto Mary beat Will Stevens. That he did. Second, the youngest ever F1 driver competed in Monaco this weekend. Yeah, and... um. 
he had a greater impact on this race than he would have if he had finished. Yeah. So let, let's we we do our normal start at the bottom, work our way up. Um, Carlos Sainz Jr. started in the pit lane. Started in the pit lane because he apparently couldn't see a light that everybody else saw. You figure nineteen other people saw it. <laughs> You should have been able to see it. Although I got to say, um, he did get a great message to give him, or his strategy, his the radio message that he got to start of the race telling him what the strategy was. It was really, I, I liked it. It, it. it made sense to me. I can tell you right now, the target is to go as fast as possible and to overtake as many cars as possible. It sounds like wow. a good strategy. I like that strategy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when it, when it comes to strategies, that is only second to Nico's strategy. Beat Lewis. Yeah, just beat Lewis. I we we, we watch this race live. It's not something that we do very often. I got to say, it was very cool to be able to sit there with as long as we were in sync because we did pause it at one point. To have the the live timing up from Formula One and be able to catch something, especially when NBC and I get they've got it, the money's got to come in. It, it, they need to make the money to air the races, but NBC being gone and we're missing radio messages and we're missing action to have that second screen up to see all the stuff that we were missing and to get that commentary was really really nice. Truly. To all of our listening public, you have not lived until the commercial is airing on the television with the little bitty screen next to it, and you're listening to Michael go through, read the commentary off the live commentary <laughs> to you so that you can keep up with the action. That was phenomenal. But that live commentary was ahead of NBC. It wasn't really oh, because, because we, we had we paused, had paused it. it, so we were down at one point about a lap. Um, that being said, there were some points when I – well, actually, before I even get to that, because, you know, this is NBC, and NBC likes to tell us things over and over and over again. Hey, did you know that that climb up out of turn turn one is much steeper than the camera makes it look? What, that three times, almost, yeah. four times I had to hear that? That was almost as informative as that you could get a $400 gin and tonic at Raskas. That, yeah, that was kind of amusing. Yeah. I have a feeling that David Hobbs had one of those $400 gin and tonics before the uh, episode aired. Only one? Well, okay, possibly two. <laughs> oh. And, you know, I have to give... NBC Sports credit. They all bunked at uh, Steve Matchett's house, apparently. As usual. As usual. They, they were, show up at Monaco. They were there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, but Steve Matchett didn't walk us through the world of tires this time around. No, we didn't get that. Um, anyway. Okay. Back to so, the race action. Um, I got to say, and, and I'm sure they are too, but I am hugely disappointed at Williams' performance. Oh, yeah. They would have almost been better off not showing up. It was a little embarrassing. True. The only cars that they managed to beat 
were the Manomarushas. That's it. Valtteri didn't make it out of, out of Q1. Felipe didn't make it out of Q2. And Felipe instantly, lap one, radioed in that he was having problems. Yeah. And the thing that bothered me about Botas is he's consistently like fourth or fifth in the grid these days. I mean, he's been qualifying well. He's been doing very, very well coming up from mid-pack into the, the top of the grid. For him not to get out of Q1, they were having issues. Well, Williams says that the problems that they had were specific to Monaco. <laughs> okay. Um, mainly because um, the well, their their issues were were very exaggerated. There's no high speed corners. There's no straights where they could generate anything when they've got load on the car. So it's just just this vicious circle that all their normal tools for doing well and catching up and staying up there they didn't have. Okay. So they say that this is not something that we should see anywhere else. And and there are in in all fairness when it comes to Monaco is an extremely unique circuit. I mean in reality they almost wind up with a a purpose built car for Monaco because yeah. um the, talking just about the braking one of the thing on the purpose-built tracks that happen is those long straights mm-hmm. allow them to cool the brakes off a little bit. So when you're constantly in corners, your brakes are getting hotter and hotter and your tires are getting, you know, that's that's tires are heating up, but your brakes are getting hotter. If you don't manage your brakes in those corners, you boil your brake fluid, you blow out your brakes. And they use those straights where they're not on their brakes to cool those puppies back down a little bit. So that they got braking in the corners again. Monaco doesn't have the straight to cool the brakes. Yeah. So they were fighting braking. I mean, more than one driver got the message today in Monaco, lift and coast, lift and coast mm-hmm. through the thing. To we'll get the brakes. Yeah. You manage those brakes because you're on them for the entire race. Yeah. So theoretically... We shouldn't see this. You know, the other thing I should mention real quick is not just is it unique with the brakes. It's unique with the steering. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to get around the hairpin at the Fairmont. Right. The Fairmont hairpin. Right. Which, which is the Fairmont this year, but it may be the best Western next year. Yeah, next year it's going to be the best Western hairpin. That's that's new contract, by the way. So, <laughs> But there, when there is the a sleep greater degree. get, get the hairpin? I, I think that's... Five years out. Okay. Yes. Um, anyway, the amount of steering angle that they put into the car is greater in Monaco just so that the car can make it around that turn. Oh, yeah. And it's, the I believe, the slowest turn in the entire F1 calendar is to get around that hairpin. <laughs> Have you seen that hairpin? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you might as well take the F1 cars down Lombardi, uh, Lombard Street in San Francisco. I Pretty mean. close. Um, now, McLaren-Honda, the other one that we have been waiting to see something happen. And this is where, again, i got to wonder if the folks over at NBC Sports were watching the same race that we were watching. Okay. Because it happened to him in, in qualifying and it happened again – uh, in actually, I'm not sure off the top. I don't have it up here exactly which race he went out. But Fernando 
Fernando Alonso had a gearbox issue. Okay. Took him out of the race. Same place over at uh, coming out of turn one in Sandoval. Mm-hmm. Um, only, the only difference is that in qualifying, he went to the right and went behind the wall there. And in the race, he went to the left, which, by the way, happens to be where the big parking sign is, the Sandoval. Right. Parking. So I think that's where he was going. And he just saw, he yeah. finally saw a spot, then he could park. Yeah. Um, but we got a good half a lap after that had happened. We had seen several cars come through Sector 1, past the area, with the yellow flags up, before they happened to have noticed that, oh, hey, look, there's double yellows over in Sector 1. I, I don't know what they were watching. Lee Diffie just kept going on and on and on. And well, I'm he, like, was tr- he was Dude, so- we've got the flashing yellows. He was going on about how much steeper that that hill is. Um, yeah, than we need it to get like, that lecture. Yeah, than it looks like on television. And possibly talking about this trifecta of motorsports that was happening today um, with Monaco and the Indy 500 and some race I've never heard of. The NASCAR Coca-Cola 600. And you know something? Let, let's just get this out. Okay. Okay. The The trifecta of races. Okay. In the auto sports world, all of the auto sports world, I'm sorry, the Coca-Cola 600, not there. I could see, yes, Monaco, definitely. Almost everybody who know, who has heard anything about auto sports knows what Monaco is. Right. Indy, also this weekend, another one of those races that definitely transcends auto sports. The third one? If you were going to say it was a, NAF- a NASCAR race... Can I, can I? Daytona. Thank you. If you're not going to say... If you're not an American, 24 Hours of Le Mans. Mm-hmm. Not the Coca-Cola 600. No. No. I think more Americans watch the Tour of France. Tour de France. Than the Coca-Cola 600? Yes. I I don't know about that. Because, you know, it's still NASCAR. Yeah. But it's waning. Did you hear that NASCAR numbers yeah, were well, way down? NASCAR's numbers have been down for a couple of years. That's why they've been playing with their qualifying and doing a bunch of other stuff. It, for the last 10 years, they've been in a decline, and they can't figure out how to fix it. I have really been trying to get my boss to jump ship from NASCAR to Formula One. This would have been a weekend. I, I was trying. Anyway, back to Monaco. Back to Monaco. So we lost Fernando. Jensen, however, got McLaren their first points of the season. Woohoo! Go Jensen! Four points for eighth place. Woohoo! Now, go Jensen! He qualified, you know, to, to step back a little bit, he qualified in 12th. Okay. A tenth out of. Um, a tenth Making of a it second into Q3. out of getting into Q3. And the only thing that kept him out of Q3 were the yellow flags that happened, which when I believe it was when Fernando had... Uh... Yeah, so it was very similar to last year when one teammate slowed down the other teammate. Um, however, he didn't start 12th. No, he didn't. Thanks to Carlos Sainz's penalty, which put him in a pit lane, and a gearbox penalty for Roman Grosjean moved him up to start in 10th and Fernando in 11th. Right. 
So, I mean, he definitely, he, he started in the points, but if you're ending two ahead, that's awesome. And now, as we already mentioned, Pastor Maldonado did not finish the race. This was due to a break-by-wire issue um, that caused him to go through the chicane coming out of the tunnel. Yep. Um, and then they immediately retired the car. Mm-hmm. And uh, on this track, you don't want to mess with that. So that, okay, makes sense. Um, let's talk about young Max Verstappen. Okay, first, before we talk too much about our, our youthful Max, can I just tell you the serendipity of being of on board with Max Verstappen's car? Let's not even go there. That was wild. Let's not even go there yet. Okay. Max, Max. let's face it, had a fantastic go winning going into this a fantastic weekend. He was second fastest in free practice too, consistently driving extremely well. Had um, never driven this track before. I mean, at all. Some of yeah. them have had experience on the track in GP two. He never has driven this track before. And he was in the race. He was on track for being very good, especially for never having done this before. Yeah, He's got a maturity of driving that I think is very fascinating. And yes, I get he's a son of a... That only goes so but, far. But Josh, no, he, he does not have the talent that his father had. He is much, much better. And even his dad says it. He is a much better driver than his dad ever was. Then you needed to say that sentence different. What you said was he well, doesn't have the talent of his father. His father doesn't, he is more talented than his father. Yes. He does, but it's not just his raw talent. Raw talent gets you far. I mean, Pastor Maldonado's got raw talent. It's raw. <laughs> um, that will only get you so far. He's got a maturity with the talent. He's he takes incredibly cool risks. I mean, he he took a pass in in Monaco that well, it was a pucker factor. Um, but he pulled it off and cleanly. I think it was one of the Saubers he did that with. Mm-hmm. Um, great pass. I want to say it was actually over by Sandavote that he did that which is not a normal passing area normally if somebody pulls off a pass it is either breaking and, and bouncing their way th- and, and shouldering their way through the hair the fairmont hairpin or coming down into the chicane in the breaking zone there because they break harder shorter than they they outbreak whoever they're trying to pass right but he also had a flash of brilliance around lap sixty sixty two. Um, he was he, he managed to get him. I think what happened was he came out of the pits mm-hmm. um, and ended up, even though he was a lap down, ended up right behind of all people Sebastian Vettel, who was in third, right, and a lap up on him, mm-hmm. so that he was not racing Vettel. But the thing was, where he was going, right behind Vettel, everybody that they were coming up to that Vettel was, well, was basically traffic for Vettel, was somebody that Verstappen was racing. Right. So all of these drivers, as Vettel's coming up on him, is getting the blue flag. They have to give way to Vettel. Max very quickly realized that if he stayed on Vettel's gearbox, didn't try and pass Vettel, just stayed tight on him... 
every time one of these guys got out of Vettel's way, he had an opening to follow <laughs> Vettel through and pass the per- pass these folks as well. He maximized that in such a way it was beautiful. Now, unfortunately, his one fatal move here was he got on the radio and radioed back to his engineer and said, hey, I'm going to stay behind Vettel because when I do this, everybody gets out of his way and it makes the passing so much easier. The problem is when you make a call like that, everybody can hear it. So as it, once he got up into 11th with Grosjean in 10th, Lotus, hearing this call, realized that now Grosjean was under threat from this combination, radios Grosjean and says, hey, heads up, don't heads let up. him. Don't when let him Vettel comes him. by you, Verstappen's right behind him, and, Verstappen, and you're racing Verstappen. Don't let him through. Right. And sure enough, Verstappen rode Vettel up the, the hill through Casino, and as they approached uh, Grosjean over by the hairpin, Grosjean was wise to the move, let Vettel through, and as soon as Vettel threw, he jinked over just enough to break up Verstappen and keep Verstappen back. Yep. That was what, about lap 62? Yep. 63? So Verstappen starts to reel in Grosjean and for a legitimate pass. Yeah, and... and they, Not it, that the other ones weren't legitimate. Let me get let me get that straight. Absolutely opportunistic, great, great instincts on Verstappen's yeah. part. But he's got he's now got to pass Grosjean on his own. They they duel it out for about a lap, and as they're coming up, start finish mm-hmm. and approaching Sandoval and. There's some controversy now as to what was happening. Now, it looked to me, from what I could see, Max misjudged a braking, misjudged where they were, Grosjean slowed down, and Max nailed Grosjean in the right rear flight, flew right through Grosjean and head first into the wall at Sandoval. Right embedded the nose of that car to probably two layers in, in into the tech pro um and i noticed this when i when i rewatched the the incident later on they had uh sitting up on a plinth just behind the barrier was fernando alonso's car it was mm-hmm. a safe place for it the impact was great enough you could see alonso's car bounce on the plinth wow um when they backed up that camera angle, um, Verstappen's knees were the the hole that, mm-hmm. where his knees go into the car were at the outer barrier. Yeah, he was up. He had buried that car up to his knees. I and yet the first radio call from his team is Max. You okay? Yeah, I'm okay. All right. And he slowly pops out of the car yep. and shakes it off. But that is what mesmerizes me. It mesmerizes me that the car that I could look at wrong and dent kept that 17-year-old safe. Because you know his daddy's heart was in his throat. There's a lot of people's heart in their th- I mean, 
it was an incredible hit. Now, this is the same barrier that two years ago, um, well, Roman Grosjean has planted himself in that barrier broadside. More than once. Yeah, more than once. But I believe it was two years ago, or maybe it was three years ago, that Felipe Massa broadsided that barrier three times in one weekend. Yes, I remember that. Three times in one weekend, he ended up broadside in that barrier. Oh, yeah. Um, Now, the initial effect of this impact, Grosjean, by the way, kept continuing. Yes. And I got to give Max some credit here. He was in 11th. Grosjean was in 10th. This was really, other than putting it into the wall, Max didn't have anything to lose. Mm-hmm. Grosjean, on the other hand, this was a bit more risky for him. Um, <coughs> but the immediate effect here was that we saw, for the first time ever, the virtual safety car come out. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I got to say, after seeing this happen, I don't get the point. Okay. Actually, before we even mention that, uh, Verstappen, the race director, and the marshals. Uh, the driver, whatever the heck he is, who uh, he they ruled that Verstappen was at fault, and he will be getting a five place grid penalty in Montreal the next race for the incident. Okay, poor kid. Yeah, but he still walked away from it. So, so anyway, back to the virtual safety car. I got to say, after seeing this, I don't see the point. Okay. I, I, I don't understand why they did this. Charlie Whiting called out the, the virtual safety. It was his call to, in, as soon as the incident occurred, trigger the virtual safety car. What the, the virtual safety car does is it basically says, and, and I'm not clear whether it's for the whole track or whether it's just for the affected sector of the track where the incident is, it sets a, a specific time that drivers are not allowed to go under. Correct. In order to limit the speed. Um, I'm trying to find it. Once Whiting was fully appreciative of the incident and realized that the medical car was also required, at that point he elected to send out the safety car. Okay. So, And, and the virtual safety car wasn't on for very long. I want I, I want to say it was maybe half a lap. Okay. Safety car comes out. This is where things get weird. A couple of cars, not too many. Lotus obviously brings Grosjean in for a tire change and a check. I think one of the Sauber's came in. And Mercedes made a very odd call to bring Lewis in. Right. Lewis, who had been the race leader for the entire race. Lewis had a 20-second gap at the time of this incident. Right. So Mercedes, the safety car comes out. Lewis is behind us. At some point behind us, I'm not exactly sure where. Lewis says at this point that he caught sight of a board and saw the Merced- what he thought was the Mercedes team out and what he thought was Nico being pitted. Nico was never brought in. Vettel, who was in third, wasn't brought in. They brought Lewis in. Mm-hmm. 
changed them onto a set of super soft tires and put them back out behind Seb. Well, they had thought that they were getting him out in front of Seb, but even still. The the reality, what what Mercedes says is they thought they thought there was enough of a gap that they'd be able to get him out in front of both. Right. The concern was, was after being on the safety car with the cooler tires, that if Sebastian was brought in and put on the super softs, he would be able to challenge. Right. Where I question this logic is that we knew the super softs themselves were going to be able to last easily more than half the race. Everybody went more than half the race distance in these super softs. They lasted a lot longer than anybody thought they would. Given how long those tires lasted and how long the super soft or, or the softs should have lasted. I didn't see a point in pulling Lewis off because his tires shouldn't have been in trouble. Even if they were cooler, his tires should not have been in trouble. Okay. Because we're coming up on the hour mark, I'm going to sum this up pretty simply. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Mercedes screwed up. There is going to be no argument that's going to make this make any sense because even they have come out and said, we screwed up. Yeah, Mercedes has gone come forward and they've apologized to Lewis for this error. I mean, this was bad. And unfortunately, I didn't get the audio because the BBC didn't carry it. Um, but the, the comment that we have from Toto Wolf. Um, and this is in response to Lewis's question on the radio to the team of what the hell happened there. Um, Toto Wolf replied, what the hell happened there? That's exactly the right question. The simple answer is we got the math, the calculation wrong. We thought we had a gap, which we didn't have when the safety car came out, and Lewis was behind the safety ca- car. The calculation was simply wrong. Hence what happened. In Monaco, you have no GPS, and that makes the whole exercise more difficult. That is why we got it wrong when we, it switched from the virtual safety car into the safety car. I went to see him in the scrum, and I said, apologies for that one. It goes on the team. It was all good between us. Now, now. asked why the team would say, take such a gamble, Wolf said the potential risk could have been Sebastian switching on a soft tire behind us. Now, very simply, from a common sense overview, disregarding the data, but we would have to, but we have to follow the data. That's how the sport works. I agree, it looks like a risk, but the simple answer was the numbers were wrong. This was a team's decision. We make decisions together, and it is not one person to blame. Now, the FIA has come out and said, um, "Yeah, you had GPS, and they had issues." Now, in the driver's um, interviews afterwards, Rosberg, I have to give him some credit. Um, he, while celebrating his win and his historic third win in Monaco and all of that great goodness, and congratulations to Nico, turned around and said that it should have been Lewis's win, mm-hmm. but it's racing and this is what happens, and it should have been Lewis's win. But I got to give Lewis credit because, you know, these things happen to Lewis and occasionally he loses his mind. Yeah. But his response was, we win as a team, we lose as a team. And 
while it's a team mistake, we all are affected. And he wasn't going to blame his team. He wasn't angry. He didn't come across as being well, angry he didn't, or bitter. I mean, and he congratulated Nico. And, and I mean, it was hard for him to get out of his car. Yeah. The, the question I have, because this is now the third time that Mercedes has botched a pit call on Lewis that has cost him <clears throat> at the very least position, if not a win. Mm-hmm. At what point does Lewis start disregarding the direction to box if he doesn't agree with it? Because at some point he's going to start to wonder of, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. And they've done this to me now three times that they've pulled me in. And I didn't think I necessarily should have been pulled in. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Now, on a side note, and not about Lewis and his team, I want to tell the story just briefly before we wrap up about Red Bull. Well, before before you do that, because it was one other thing that I thought was really kind of odd over this and, and how this okay. the, the, the last eight laps played out. So Lewis goes into this whole thing with a 20-second gap, and Nico fighting off... Sebastian Vettel, for most of the race, couldn't get, what, more than about two seconds clear of him? Yep. We get the safety car. Mm-hmm. Safety car pulls in, and Vettel, or, or and, and Nico pulls away and instantly opens up that gap to almost four seconds. That's clean air. Yeah, it's clean. But he had, when, when you're 20 seconds behind the, the nearest car, you're in clean air, too. <laughs> True. So what happened there? That Nico was able to open up so quickly at that point. Same kind of tire, same strategy. But again, it, it can't be a matter of clean air because, again, Lewis was gone. Yeah, I don't know. And, and that one I couldn't figure out either as to how that played out that way. No, I, I don't know. So Red Bull. Yes. Okay, first and foremost, let's just all take a deep sigh of relief and congratulate Red Bull for actually being up at the top of the towards the top of the game. Not only that, we had Danny Kvyat who qualified in fourth. Oh no, it was Ricardo who qualified in, in fourth. Fourth and Kvyat in fifth. Yeah. But they divided the Ferraris. Um so we have them up there. Now, Kvyat is in front of Ricardo on the last lap. On the last... Or last two, three laps. But it it, it was after the safety car was released. Okay. And we hear this really odd call. So then Ricardo passes Kvyat and starts fighting with Lewis. Is trying well, to get... Before up. he passes them, he passes Ricardo. Or not Ricardo. He passes um, Kimmy. And bounces Kimmy off into the wall. Kimmy gets on the radio. He's kind of ticked over that, that it's not very nice. And It was a long conversation for Kimmy. But the marshals came out and, and deemed it a racing incident. There's still some question about that. But okay. passes Kimmy, gets himself up into fifth with Kvyat in fourth. Right. Passes Kvyat and then starts reeling in Lewis. And he was... Basically, Kvyat was told to give Ricardo the place. 
I was trying to get there because what we knew was that at the very end, Ricardo was told that he was going to have to give the place back to Caveat, but we didn't know that there was an original switch. Okay. So Ricardo starts to try to reel in Lewis, and all of a sudden we hear a radio call to uh, Daniel that if you don't make it on this lap, we're going to have to give the space the place, uh, the place back up to Caveat. Nothing is said, but it was an odd radio call. It was an odd radio call, and it came just seconds after we got word from the stewards that um, they were deeming Daniel's uh, issue with Kimmy as a racing incident. So it made absolutely no sense as to why we were hearing this call. Right, and why we were going to give up places at all. So it was not until – and so all of a sudden, Kvyat then takes fourth, and Mm -hmm. Ricardo takes fifth. And – so it was after the race that we find out what the rest of the story is. Kvyat had given up his fourth place spot to Ricardo because the pit wall at Red Bull believed that Ricardo had more ability to challenge Lewis for third as opposed to where Kvyat could challenge him. So they, they made them switch. They did. And then when Ricardo's challenge was unsuccessful, they made him switch back. Well, you know, I got to say the decision to bring Ricardo up probably was the right one because Kvyat was not close to Lewis, but Ricardo got up there and got up there fast. Yeah, he was on better tires or younger tires or something. Yeah. But I just found it very interesting when you look at the difference between trusting your team that they're going to make it right, you know, they're going to mm-hmm. do what's right for the team. They're going to try to get the best challenge to the spot. But if it didn't work, they were going to give it back to you. And that was a big trust on Kvyat's part. Well, there was that. There was also the, if this was a Ricardo-Vettel pairing, and Vettel was in that same situation. They wouldn't have given ba- up. Yeah, based on what we've seen with, with him and Weber, yeah, this would have been... Oh, multi three four, Seb. Multi yeah. three four. Yeah, exactly. And I just thought that that was an interesting little color story, and I thought it was really cool and also mighty honorable of Ricardo to give that space back. Yeah. Because had Ricardo let Vettel through to challenge, and then was told to, it wouldn't have been that way either. Yeah. So that's what I was trying to go for. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting way to end that race. Um, I think the last 12 laps were probably the most interesting of the race. Easily. About the time that young Max buried himself into a wall, it got interesting. But, you know, that's why one of the reasons why I like Monaco. And I was really concerned because in... Until we started seeing Max hop on that line behind Sebastian, this was looking to be uh, the processional Monaco. It was not looking like there was going to be a whole lot of action. There was going to be a couple of little minor passes here and there, but nothing else was going to happen. And then we have this. Yeah. And we have a race that nobody would have expected. I mean, you turned around and said, well, I hope Lewis's tuxedo's over in the apartment because he's going to need it. Yeah. Ten laps later, and everything had changed. Exactly. And then I had to go cry for a while. 
So, well, you know, we should mention our next race we head to, first one in North America for the season, headed to Montreal in two weeks, and we won't be doing a show. Nope. Or the weekend after Montreal, we won't be doing a show. Nope. So we'll be catching up in a couple of weeks after that. But don't don't start crying for us yet. We'll be around next weekend to prepare everybody for it. Yep, we've got one more. And then we go and we put on the old mail buoy hats. And we do a little cruising. Yep. We're headed off on the Celebrity Summit back to Bermuda. <laughs> we did it last year and we had such a great time. We'll be doing it again this year, and we can't wait. Uh, but we've got one more week before that happens, and then when we get back, since we've got all this dead time, we get to go and, and hearken back to the old mail buoy days and, and do some talks of, of cruising and, and travel and vacation, which is, I think, the other thing that we really do enjoy podcasting about. So, Yes, exactly. But... Until next week, remember you can find us over on iTunes. You can find us over on Stitcher. Uh, Leave us a review on one or both. We would really, really appreciate it. Uh, Over over on uh, Facebook at The Bloke and a Bird Show. And uh, remember the website is www.theblokeandabird.com. And with that, I think we'll call it a show. It's a show. It's a show.